Old Testament scripture reading for this morning, as well as the sermon text, comes from Genesis chapter 8, beginning in verse 1, and we will read the chapter in its entirety. But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark, and he sent a wind over the earth, and the waters receded, and the springs of the deep and the floodgates of the heavens had been closed, and the rain had stopped falling from the sky. The water receded steadily from the earth. At the end of the hundred and fifty days, the water had gone down, and on the seventeenth day of the seventh month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. The waters continued to recede until the tenth month, and on the first day of the tenth month, the tops of the mountains became visible. After 40 days, Noah opened the window he had made in the ark and sent out a raven, and it kept flying back and forth until the water had dried up from the earth. Then he sent out a dove to see if the water had receded from the surface of the ground, but the dove could find no place to set its feet because there was water over all the surface of the earth. So it returned to Noah in the ark. He reached out his hand and took the dove and brought it back in to himself in the ark. He waited seven more days and again set out the dove from the ark. When the dove returned to him in the evening, there in its beak was a freshly plucked olive leaf. Then Noah knew that the water had receded from the earth. He waited seven more days and sent the dove out again, but this time it did not return to him. But the first day of the first month of Noah's 601st year, the water had dried up from the earth. Noah then removed the covering from the ark and saw that the surface of the ground was dry. But the 27th day, or by the 27th day of the second month, the earth was completely dry. Then God said to Noah, Come out of the ark. You and your wife and your sons and their wives bring out every kind of living creature that is with you, the birds, the animals, and all the creatures that move along the ground so they can multiply on the earth and be fruitful and increase in number upon it. So Noah came out together with his sons and his wife and his two, her son's wives, all the animals and all the creatures that move along the ground, and all the birds, everything that moves on the earth, came out of the ark, one kind after another. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord, and taking some of all the clean animals and clean birds, he sacrificed burnt offerings on it. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of man, even though every inclination of his heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. As long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Please pray with me. Lord, as we come to hear your word this day, we ask 
that you would give your servant strength, that you would give him boldness to proclaim your gospel. We pray, Father, that your word would indeed go forth and accomplish all that you have required of it to do. We pray all of these things in the name of Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. It is easy for mankind to forget. Uh, Forgetfulness seems to be something deeply embedded within us, something that affects all kinds of areas of our life. And just think about it for a moment. I mean, we complain about particular troubles in our life, whether it's a physical ailment, whether it's been a busy week or an unruly child. We complain about all sorts of things in this life because we forget about the other good things that God has given to us. I mean, forgetfulness is rooted deeply in this issue. The little phrase that your mother told you when you were growing up, count your blessings, you know, name them one by one. As Americans, one of the chief ways that we forget is when we go out to the store and we look at that one item, we long after that one thing that we believe will make our life so much better. If we just have this one thing, life will again be wonderful. And we do this because we forget that the last 10 things we purchased to make us happy didn't last. They faded. They lost their glory and their luster once we had them. Men and women will look for new lovers or new spouses longing for something different because they forget how wonderful and lovely the person they have and love already is. The list goes on and on like this. We are a forgetful people. We make promises and we forget to keep them. We make vows And we forget to honor them. We completely abandon and forsake that which satisfies and meets our longings and our deepest desires because we are a forgetful people, easily satisfied. C.S. Lewis says says it in this way. He says, we are like children content to play with mud pies because we cannot fathom what what a holiday at sea is like. And Jeremiah put it another way. He says that the people of God, about the people of God, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living water for broken cisterns that hold no water. We are a people defined by our forgetfulness, forgetting the goodness of God, forgetting the depth of our plight and sin and the height of the love that we have in him. We forget what kind of satisfaction is able to be found in God himself, and it is found in nothing else but him. Well, how do we deal with this? How do we uh, cope with our condition of forgetting who we are, forgetting who God is and what he has indeed done for his people? Well, according to Genesis 8, it is to remember that our hope is built not on our remembrance, but on a God who remembers A God who remembers. Our text opens up this morning, and the first thing we see is God remembered Noah. God remembered Noah. As we come to chapter 8 this morning, our text 
really begins in the middle of the, the, the epic or a story or the account of Noah. I mean, the text of Noah expands over several chapters, and we come right into the middle of the text of this great account of Noah. Noah has already found favor in the eyes of the Lord, and he alone in all the earth has been found blameless in the eyes of God. In a time when the whole world, when every person upon the earth cares nothing for God or his law or his decree or his promises, in this day, Noah remembers God, and God finds favor with him. And God commands Noah to build an ark to deliver him and his children and his family from the waters of judgment that will rain down and burst forth from the face of the earth. And Noah does all that God commands him to do. And God sets him inside of the ark, and he seals the door, and he judges the world. And the tension in this story, they continue to build and build as the waters come and cover the face of the earth. The waters prevail upon the beasts of the earth, and they prevail upon mankind and upon the mountains themselves, covering all that they encounter. And as we come to chapter 8, we're left wondering what God will do next. What will be the outcome of this entire Ordeal because the text is reaching its crescendo. And the very first thing, the center of this whole account, is found in the first verse of chapter 8 that tells us that God remembered Noah. Though the entire earth has been judged, though every living being has been wiped from the face of the earth, God remembers Noah and all those living upon the ark with him. I mean, this is very significant to the whole account of Noah. It's not as though God could have or would have forgotten about Noah. He is the God of the universe who knows all things, but rather the text is communicating something to us here in this phrase. In Genesis 19, Scripture uses the same language that throws light on this passage. God is destroying Sodom and Gomorrah. A great judgment is coming upon this city and their wickedness upon the earth is being judged. And in verse 29 of chapter 19, it says that when God destroyed all of Sodom and Gomorrah, God remembered Abraham and he sent Lot out, sent Lot out from that place that was overthrown. God made a promise. He made a commitment to Abraham, and he honored that commitment by remembering his covenant, by remembering this man named Lot and delivering Abraham's kin from judgment. If you go to Genesis 30, 22, you read about how Jacob's wife, Leah, continued to have baby after baby after baby while Rachel has none to Jacob. And Rachel cries out to God for a son, and God hears her, and he remembers Rachel. He did not forget his child. He does know her troubles. He does not forget about his people or her plight, just as he doesn't forget about yours. But I think the most significant text where we find this word remember is in Exodus 2.24. Israel has been enslaved to Egypt they have lived in the land of Egypt for 400 years. And the thought on your mind as you read that, as you consider 400 years, is where is God 
Israel is in dire slave, or, uh, straits. They are in slavery that binds them to a nation that is not their own in a land that is not their own. Has God forgotten his people? Has he abandoned his people to whatever fate they may encounter while they are down there? Then the text tells us God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant. He remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel. He saw the trouble that they are in, and he remembers them, and he would not forsake them while they are in this difficult place. And that is what we see here in this text in chapter 8. God made a promise to Noah and to his children, and he will not forget his promises. He will remember what he has promised, and he will fulfill them. You can take it to the bank. But you have to put yourself in Noah's shoes here a little bit to understand the import of this text. Noah has been trapped inside of a boat about the length of a football field and a half with every creature under the sun while it has rained and poured for 40 days and 40 nights. And then for 150 days more, that's five months, the waters continue to prevail upon the face of the earth. They continue to rise upon the earth. And then the text tells us that even though the waters begin to recede, it takes another five months, another 150 days before even the tops of the mountains have been seen. 11 months since the rains began and Noah has heard nothing from God. God only told him to get on board the ark. He never told him how long he would remain there. And Noah actually has seen nothing outside of the ark to guarantee that God is working. If he were to look out, all he would see would be waters about him. All he sees is the remnants of judgment upon the face of the earth. There is no clear uh, fulfillment of God's promises to him. He made this promise. Will he keep it? He and his family uh, are to be preserved through the waters that would, uh, that would judge the whole earth. And Noah, according to this promise, Noah would see these waters recede and he would again step out on dry ground. And of course, we understand that that is what will happen. But if you put your place in Noah as he waits, as he is in the midst of this, I mean, surely it wouldn't surprise us in the least to find out that Noah, even surrounded by his family and all the creatures of the earth whom God has purpose to save from this certain death. It wouldn't surprise us to find out that Noah was having his doubts about God keeping his promise or becoming impatient as to how quickly he will fulfill the promise he gave, wondering if God will ever finally remove the waters from the earth, wondering if God would indeed keep his promise that was to him and to his children and to his wife and to his son's wives. It wouldn't surprise us one bit if Noah were to feel abandoned and forgotten, all alone in a sea of glass. A sea is a very lonely place, and there is no one upon this earth but Noah and his family. And you look at that, 
And Noah surely must have known God has kept his promise to judge the earth. But the question still is, will God keep his promise to deliver Noah? And then we read these words in chapter 8, verse 1, these words of comfort that God remembered Noah. He did not forget his promise to preserve Noah. He did not forget this child of God. He never abandoned him all the days that he is upon the sea. And so the text tells us how God began to work his creation again. He begins to rebuild it, even though Noah may not be aware or see yet what God is doing in his promises. It tells us God made a wind blow upon the waters. And that word wind is the same word in Hebrew for the word spirit. Just as you saw back in Genesis 1, the spirit of God in creation hovering over the face of of the deep, and then bringing new life from this, these waters and chaotic uh, waters and deep, so to hear. What you are beginning to see is the Spirit of God coming to bring new life again. The waters are being sent back to their boundaries. Rains have stopped. The deep has been shut, and the wind begins to blow wherever it wishes, bringing life out of the death. This is, again, the way that the Spirit of God always works. He works in this way in creation. He brings new life. He makes new creation out of it. But if you go into the New Testament, in John chapter 3, Christ talks about a wind that will blow wherever it wishes. And the text is referencing Ezekiel 37 and Ezekiel 36, where the Spirit of God breathes life into an army of dry bones in the valley of dry bones. And the Spirit's work is to bring new life and into the dead, to raise the death, dead, to bring new life, making them new creations. And that is what you see happening here. The Spirit is blowing where it will. The new creation is being raised out of the remnant of the old world. And in fact, this account uh, continues to parallel the creation account in many ways. The waters will recede back, even as they did in the creation. The light appears again after the rain clouds disappear and the heavens are shut up. Water is separated from the dry ground. Plants begin to grow again, even as we see the dove bring an olive branch back in its mouth. And it's a freshly plucked one. The last thing that happens is that the birds and the land animals go forth into the earth to multiply, to swarm and to teem, to fill the earth. That's the exact language of Genesis 1, to fill it. And the people follow as well the same commission. The point of all this is that God is at work fulfilling his promise to Noah to preserve Noah and his children, to keep Noah and his children. God is faithful to his word and to his promise. God is still at work even though we may not see it. Even though the doors may be shut up and Noah cannot understand or see what God is doing, he has not forgotten his promise and he is doing what he said he would do. His word is sure and it is true. And even though Noah or ourselves may feel abandoned 
or think that God has forgotten us, nothing is further from the truth. I mean, God may not remove our distress from us. He may not give us an easy life. He didn't give Noah a very easy life for 100 years or, or uh, somewhere in the time frame of that to build an ark and then to remain upon this ark for an entire year and then to populate a world by himself, to not have any other people upon the globe by himself. Noah was not given an easy life. God never promises that we will have an easy life. But if you are God's child, then he has made a promise to you. And he will not forget the good work that he began in you. The new creation that he started, he will bring to completion. God has remembered his promises. And he is faithful and true. And what is fascinating is about this text that unfolds about God remembering Noah about not forgetting is that it leads in turn to Noah remembering God. Noah remembering God. As the waters recede and the Spirit of God does his work of new creation upon the earth, the text slows down and it focuses in on Noah and some birds. They, they become the main actors. Noah and these uh, birds that are to fly in the air. And I say it slows down because a hundred years have passed from chapter 6 into chapter 7. And now almost 10 months have passed in a very few short verses. And then we see this almost daily or at least weekly interaction of Noah and the birds every, or every seven days. And the text even slows down to the point where it says Noah reached out his arm and he took the bird and he brought it in. It is slowing down to focus in on something worthwhile here. In verse 6, Noah opens the window of the ark and he sends out a raven, which is considered a, a stronger bird in the ancient world. It still is a stronger bird. It's a larger bird. It can remain in flight much longer than, say, a dove. But it flies, the text says, it went to and fro, and basically he continues to fly searching for land, though he did not find any. Then Noah tries again in seven days, sending forth a dove, a much weaker bird that will need to rest and will need to return for rest. But the dove returned and Noah put out his arm and took her and brought her onto the ark. And as the text unfolds, we want to know what is Noah doing? What is he looking for? Why is this so important to him? Why keep sending birds out into the air? People of God, Noah is looking for a sign from God that God has indeed kept his promise, that he will deliver all those who are aboard the ark safely to the other side through the waters of judgment. I mean, that's what this whole scene with the birds is about. Noah has not forgotten the promises of God, and he is looking to see the answer, to see if God has fulfilled them yet. He is longing for God to fulfill and keep his promises. And the next time he sends out the dove, it returns with an olive branch in his mouth, a symbol that we still today talk about as a symbol for peace. It is as though God has said to Noah, peace, peace. 
I keep my promises. I keep my word. I will not abandon you. I will not leave you upon the surface of the waters. The earth is returning to a state of peace after the violence that has covered it and been washed away from it. But more importantly, the earth is once again growing plants. The waters are receding, and Noah has learned through this exercise of faith that God is still being faithful to his promises. Though it may take many more or much more time than we would like, we like to see God work immediately. We like to see God take care of things quickly and in our own time to conform his kingdom to ours. But God works in his own good time, building his kingdom in his time. And Noah again sends out a dove. This time she does not return because she has found a place to rest permanently. Noah then goes on to remove the covering of the ark. Basically, uh, he takes the roof off of the ark. And finally, after 11 months of being upon the waters at this point, he beholds with his own two eyes dry ground. He finally sees with his eyes what he has believed in by faith that God is working upon the earth. And yet he waits almost another month before he disembarks from the ark. In fact, he waits until God himself speaks and God's word directs him to disembark from the ark to fill the earth anew. And the very next thing we see Noah do is build an altar and offer sacrifices. I mean, the text, uh, it, it makes it sound as though he didn't even stretch his legs or anything as he gets off the ark. After being cooped up on that ship with all those animals that are, are making certain kinds of smells and very tight quarters, you would think the least he would want to do is run a, a little victory lap around the ark or something for a minute or two, but the text tells us the very first thing he does is build an altar to the Lord his God and praise him through sacrifices. Again, why? What is going on here? Why take the time to do this and not just take the time to uh, offer a sacrifice, but offer it first before anything else is done in this new world? People of God, Noah is living in gratitude for what God has done for him. He is so thankful that God keeps his promises, that God has spoken good concerning him and his family, and he has been faithful to uphold his commitment to them. And Noah is so overcome with praise and adoration and gratitude to his God that he offers a thank offering. He is grateful for what God has done. But actually, the text seems to imply that he is making two kinds of sacrifices here. Two kinds with two different kinds of animals, both the clean livestock and clean birds. He is making a sacrifice of thanksgiving for his deliverance and out of gratitude for the work of God done on behalf or done on his behalf. But he is also offering a sin offering. He's offering a sacrifice to atone for his sins. You'll notice the text at this point, the flood doesn't do away with the wickedness within man. 
Though Noah is found righteous in the eyes of God, he is still a sinner in need of God's mercy and forgiveness. Though God has indeed preserved his life upon this world, he offers a sacrifice for his and his family's sins. In fact, God spells the offering that is offered, and he says about men, this is very important. He says, even though the intention of man's heart is always evil from his youth on, I will never again strike down every living creature as I have done. But notice what he says about man here. God has just wiped away all men from the face of the earth. The only men here that God could possibly be speaking about are eight people, Noah and his sons and all their wives. Sin is still present inside of mankind. The flood has not eradicated our sin nature. And Noah, recognizing himself as a sinner before the face of a holy God, capable of insurmountable judgment, humbles himself and offers sacrifices to God. And we'll dwell on it more next week, but God makes a new covenant at this point, basically saying, I will never again destroy the earth in the way that I have. While the earth remains, so too will seed time and harvest, winter and summer, day and night. The life cycle of the earth will continue as long as I allow the world to endure. God vows that he will not repeat the same destruction he has rendered before. And that indeed is good news to hear because we have just witnesses, a God witnessed, a God who keeps his promises. That is what this whole text centers upon as you move through it. That is the question that seems to hang in the air that we need to answer is what kind of God is this? What kind of God are we dealing with here? One who judges the whole earth. Well, he is a God who remembers his promises. He is a God who fulfills and does what he says he would do. He said he would judge the earth, and so he did. And he remembers Noah in his time of need as well. He will not abandon his people who he has gathered to himself. God never in all the time that he was upon the ark, no matter what Noah may have been experiencing or not experiencing, God never abandoned Noah. Though it may have seemed that way. Though whenever he would have looked out, he would have wondered, is God still there? Can I count on this God? Questions we ask of God as well. I mean, we struggle with all kinds of things in this life. And it is tempting to say, where is God in all of this? Has he abandoned me in my sorrow, in my pain, in my marriage? I mean, has God forgotten me? And the answer, dear Christian, is the same answer that it was for Noah. God has not forgotten his people. In fact, he gives us his word that he will not do so. And it is written here before you. What is written in here? You can trust that God, when he says it, will do it. He will keep his words because that is what kind of God he is. He is a God who keeps his promises. He has even given us signs that he will do so. Even as he has given Noah signs that the flood was receding, he gives us signs and he gives this to us through Christ Jesus himself. 
And what is it that Christ said to the Pharisees who demanded signs and wonders? He said, I will give you a sign, but not the ones that you are looking for. It will be the sign of Jonah. Jonah, who was under the waters for three days, and after three days he was spit upon dry dry ground and given new life. And that is indeed what Christ did. That is the sign that he gave that his promises are true, that after three days in the grave, when he underwent the judgment of God against our sins, he defeated death and hell and was raised again from the dead. He passed through the waters of judgment and came forth as one victorious over even the grave, king over all things, even death itself. God is not a God who forgets his promises, and you can look back with surety at the person and work of Christ and remember that truth and that fulfillment in his life and in his being. God remembers his promises and his people. He will not abandon them. He remembers those promises of old, that he would deliver a people from earth or from death, that one day he would deliver his people from a final judgment through the righteous work of one. And all the promises of God that are given throughout the scripture culminate and have their completion and fulfillment in Christ Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. People of God, God has not forgotten you. I don't know what you're going through. Whatever you're going through, however great or small, however minor or insignificant or how overwhelming it may seem, God has not left you on your own. He has not forsaken you. He has not abandoned you. His promises are sure because he who makes them is faithful and just and he will do what he said he would do and he guarantees it and he promises it and shows us in the person and work of Christ that he will do this. And that gives us such hope that truly we can in turn do what Noah did and turn and remember God. We can turn and live in gratitude for all that God has just done for us, for all that he said he would do and that he brought to completion. He has given us life. He has given us peace beyond all understanding. He has given us an advocate before the Father as a propitiation for our sins. And the least that we can do is to turn away from our sins away from whatever idolatry draws us away from him, whatever broken cistern we run to so quickly forgetting the satisfaction that is there and found for us in Christ. And we can seek a God who lives, a God who is righteous, and we ourselves can live or seek to live a godly, righteous, and sober life to the glory of his holy name. Let us indeed turn and gratitude to our God with praise and thanksgiving upon our lips and within our hearts, offering, even as Romans 12 commands us to do, our lives as living sacrifices to our God, the God of the Bible, the God who keeps his promises, and they are yes and amen in Christ Jesus, who is our Lord and Savior. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you that you have not abandoned us. 
We pray, Father, that in our hour of need, when we feel all alone, that you would remind us of these deep truths. Help us to remember who you are. For surely, God, you have remembered us. You know our frames. You know we are but dust. You know the weaknesses within us. And we ask, God, that even as you would remember us, you would turn us in gratitude and remembrance of you. Father, we pray that you would continue to turn our hearts and our minds back unto the source of life, the fountain, the living water. And Father, we pray all of these things this day as your people. In Christ's name, amen.